Welcome to Breakthrough Radio, a global business radio show where smarter strategies deliver breakthrough results by adding an entrepreneurial touch driving today's profits. Now, get ready for three powerful breakthrough segments with Michelle Price. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, depending on where you're tuning into Breakthrough Radio from. This is Michelle Price here, where we're coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas today. And on Breakthrough Radio, we're celebrating nine years of talking about how to master the internal and external strategies of business. You know, growth is going through failure by challenging yourself to learn something new, and you end up learning even better. Now, it's the first Monday of the month, and that is when we get to hear from Don Cooper, the sales heretic on sales. And you know, our breakthrough tip at the top of the show is a really short tip where you get to take that information and go take action on it right now. Our featured spot today is with the author of The Asshole Survival Guide and Stanford professor Bob Sutton. Our featured interview is a 30-month. 35-minute conversation. That's a nice deep dive into the topic of the day to allow you to gain a much better understanding, a level of knowledge, and an application for your business. And then wrapping up Breakthrough Break Radio with our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey, who focuses on the intersection between people and technology. The Breakthrough Bite is a 12-minute segment, not as long as our deep dive interview, not as short as our breakthrough tip, because we like to meet all the learning styles of our listeners. I want to thank you for coming to listen to Breakthrough Radio, and if it's your first visit, please make sure you thank the person who told you about us. Here's the scoop. You're going to want to listen without distraction, and that's why you only need to write down one URL today. It's www.thebreakthroughradio.com. You know, every week you have access to a blog post that gives you the frame of the conversation for each and every episode. So any and everything we talk about today, something we may reference to, we'll link to it there. Whether it's how to reach Don, Jeff, Bob, or myself, make sure you do visit and connect with each one of us. Do more than follow. Reach out. Truly connect. Ask us a question, engage us in conversation, and of course, when it makes sense for your business, hire us. Now, I want to mention there's going to be a slight shift in the conversation from Don Cooper today, because for some reason, his segment did not upload, and so instead of hearing him talk about why people buy you, and we will go back and we will give you a link where you can go listen to that. Today, we're going to listen to buying signals. What do we need to know about buying signals? So please join me as we welcome Don Cooper to Breakthrough Radio. Good morning, Michelle. There are lots and lots of buying signals. And throughout the sales process, you might get dozens of signals from any given prospect. There are nonverbal signals, things like smiling, nodding, when people relax their shoulders, touching the product, if it's a couple or a group, looking at each other significantly, asking questions like, what colors does it come in? Do you deliver? Tell me about the warranty. What's the best price you can give me? Making positive comments about your company, the product, the service, 
asking about available options, asking about financing, when they share personal information, asking about installation or maintenance, or objections. Objections are buying signals because the prospect wouldn't bother to object if they weren't interested. All these are buying signals. All these are good. However, not all buying signals are equal. There are three different types of buying signals. And just as there are three different colors of traffic signals, there are three different colors of buying signals. Green, yellow, and red. A green signal means, let's keep going. I need more information. A yellow signal means, slow down, let's discuss this for a while, and then we'll decide whether we keep going or we stop. And a red signal means, stop, that's it, we're done, take my money. And the key is to be able to differentiate one type of signal from the other. As a general rule, green signals tend to be about the product or service itself. They indicate that the buyer is in an information gathering mode. They haven't made their decision yet. They're still looking for information to help them make that decision. So questions about the product or service, questions about color, about options, about service, tend to be green signals. Yellow signals tend to be questions that involve more discussion. They tend to be about either the buying process or ownership. Questions about the warranty or guarantees. Questions about financing. Those types of questions typically require a little more discussion. They're bigger issues and they usually indicate that the buyer is probably going to buy this product the question is, will they buy it from you and will they buy it now? Then a red signal is any indication that the buyer has made up their mind. They want this product or service, they want it from you, and they want it now. So when they're nodding, that's a great signal. It may not be red though. They can nod early on in the process. If you finish discussing a yellow signal issue, something about the financing, and they're nodding with a satisfied look on their face, that then may be a red signal. Red signals are often missed because they're not really obvious. In fact, the most common red signal is silence. And most salespeople and business owners completely miss this signal because we're too busy talking. We fear silence. That silence, though, is an indicator that they've made up their mind. When the prospect doesn't ask anything else, doesn't say anything else, it means they're done. They're ready to buy. What happens all too often is salespeople will make one of two mistakes. Either they'll get a green signal and stop. They'll try to close right then and there and they get rejected. Because even though they got a buying signal, it wasn't a red signal, it was green. The prospect was saying that they need more information and want to keep going. The other mistake that's frequently made is the salesperson will get a red signal and keep on going. 
and they could very often talk themselves right out of the sale. So as you and your prospect are talking, pay very close attention to what they're communicating, both verbally and non-verbally, in terms of their buying signals. As you notice those signals, ask yourself, what kind of signal is this? Is it a green signal? Should we keep going? Is it yellow? Do we need to slow down and then decide? Or is this red? Are we done? The more you practice this, the better at it you'll get. And when you can quickly differentiate which type of signal is which, you'll know precisely when to close. That will boost your sales. Oh, I've got to tell you, I love it. We have been blessed to have Don Cooper on Breakthrough Radio for seven years now. He is phenomenal when it comes to teaching us all the wonderful things we need to understand and learn and put into action about sales. Now, in our last episode, before our break this summer, we talked to Martin Babbitt about the new normal in leadership. And, you know, we both talked about the significant changes happening in leadership as we're witnessing a tremendous shift from the industrial age. Now, a big company that's been great at tapping into the new normal of leadership is Ford. How will you follow Ford's lead and be more strategic in how you connect and serve your customers? You know, today's customer has changed the game of buying for business no matter what industry you fit. It's why having a buyer journey map has become mandatory if you want to succeed and grow. And this is exactly what Growth Hacking CMO does with their clients when they're approached and asked, help us grow our business and our revenues. Growth Hacking CMO are masters at crafting that roadmap and then showing clients how to structure their execution with precision. Defining what's important to your customers today and using analytics to see how they're making their buying decisions is a healthy way to prepare for their future needs and for you to stay relevant. When you know what is valuable to your customer, you can use that to capture their attention and have it be welcome. Whether you have 10 or 10,000 customers, your buyer journey app saves you time, money, and headaches. It is your sweet spot in business. So connect and discover how Growth Hacking Fimo can help you do that for this last quarter in 2017. And before we start our featured interview, remember we appreciate it when you share today's show by going to www.thebreakthroughradio.com. Now, join me as we talk with Bob Sutton, the author of The Asshole Survival Guide. You know, Bob's most popular book, The No Asshole Rule, has begged for the answer, okay, we've identified I'm dealing with an asshole, now what? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about that now what? You guys, please join me as we welcome Bob Sutton to Breakthrough Radio. How are you doing today, Bob? Hi, hi Michelle. It's great to talk to you. Thank you. It's wonderful talking with you, too. You know, one of the things that I found really interesting, and I love how you led off with uh, your follow-up book to the, the No Asshole Rule, is how you received, like, an email at least every day. So for these past 10 years, you have been getting a solidarity question of, so what do I do with the asshole that's in front of me now? Which I believe you told us has added up to like eight thousand emails. Oh, it's just now, crazy. I'm curious, <laughs> I'm curious I, I, to ask you, did 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 that start 
becoming overwhelming, or did you go, okay, I'm on to something here? Well, well um, it would occasionally be overwhelming when I'd have an article or something appear and have a deluge, but, uh, but it is one of those things that I got kind of fascinated with it. And, and the other thing that would keep me going is that uh, people would tell me that, that it helps sometimes. You know, it's that little bit of like, you know, the rat getting the pellet in the cage. There's that little bit of reinforcement. And uh, so it was both the need out there and, and the fact that I think that, that uh, some of the ideas I had helped. I, one of the things that helps people the most, I think, is just realizing they're, they're not alone. But, uh, but yeah, it was, it, it's kind of weird. And I would do other things intermittently and work on other projects, but always it was just in the background. You know, when I was reading that whole survival guide, one of the things that really stood out to me, I'm going to hold my hand up. That's a phrase we use at Breakthrough Radio when we're about uh-huh. to develop something personal about ourselves. And that is, I am as guilty as every other everyday person when it comes to dealing with a jerk that. The first thing I tend to do, even though I know it's not helpful, is go, what did I do wrong? Why do we blame ourselves when we're dealing with assholes? That is just so stupid, but we do it almost as if it's just a reflex. Yeah, some, well, well, some people blame themselves. I, I blame myself, too, but, uh, but I think one of the reasons that we tend to um, blame ourselves, and at least I tend to blame myself, is that, is that we start having the sense that um, – when something happens in my world, it's because of what I do. People are responding to me. And, and, it's, and in some ways, it's actually a healthy response because you're always looking to see how you're influencing the environment around you. But um, a really large percent of the time when people are nasty to us, it's either because they're nasty to everyone, they're having a bad day. Um, very often, it's just about them. And, and, and it might be that you are doing something to upset them, but uh, the first approximation usually is, uh, well, they're hurried. Uh, they've just had an encounter with a jerk. They're sleep deprived. Uh, maybe they're feeling rich and powerful. Those are the kind of things that tend to provoke people to be unpleasant to us. And uh, most of the time it isn't our fault. Sometimes it is, but most of the time it isn't. So when we're in those situations, Bob, do we really have to run through those questions in our head of was someone just a jerk to them? Are they sleep deprived? Are they just on an ego no. kick? <laughs> what kind of things can we do? To, and does it really matter to identify why they're being an asshole? No, no. So, so I, I think the place to start, I, that's, I like that question, because I think the place to start is who knows why the heck they're doing it, uh, where I start with, and this is how I define somebody who um, who I would call an asshole, is, is I start with how they're making you feel. So, so if somebody makes you feel demeaned, de-energized, disrespected, um, regardless of the exact cause of it, um, to help yourself, you've got to do something to to reduce the amount of suffering that you have. So, so that's where I start, and. Uh, and, 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 I, and I like your point because in some ways it actually doesn't matter um, in, unless maybe you're trying to defeat them or something. And, 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 and that's where I start. And, and, and then the three basic kind of coping strategies that um, I tend to think of is, number one, can I leave the scene? Can I get out? And that's generally the best thing to do, whether it's a short-term or long-term interaction, but you can't always do that. The second one is, well, uh, do I just have to take it? And then the third one is, can I do something about the situation? Can I fight back? 
but uh, but I, I like your question because uh, because the question of why they're doing it sometimes that matters, but uh, in a lot of situations it's just I, I've got to reduce the damage and harm that's happening to me. So when we stop and think about that, Bob, it sounds like one of the few times in life where avoidance is actually <laughs> a good thing. Whereas in business, other times avoidance can get you in a lot of hot water. Oh, I, I, I like that. Well, well, to me, it's and this is you know sort of my joke is know your asshole and know your situation to some degree, and 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 you kind of got to say, well, can I leave and get another job? Um, do I have the power in this situation? And this is one of the things that really does is important is, is uh, if you're the boss, if you've got a, a, a big posse of people on your side, um, or if you, if you have another exit option you don't care, then, you know, maybe it's, it's fine to go to, to war with people and confront, with pe- and, and confront them. So I'm not saying don't always confront. I'm just saying uh, do it in such a way to protect yourself. And, and, and one thing that I – I, I really, I think, is really important in terms of having some some understanding of the jerk in front of you, is to oversimplify. Uh, there are some people who are nasty because they believe that's how they're going to get ahead, and if you're dealing with that sort of jerk, then confronting them and trying to bring them down doesn't work very well, unless you can convince them that it's not in their best self-interest, and that's kind of like a strategic asshole, I would call it. Uh, my my wife for years was managing partner of a large law firm, and she had some lawyers like that. And if she could convince them that uh, it was not in their best financial self-interest to act that way, they would change their behavior. But the other kind is the kind of person who is unintentionally ignoring you, uh, expressing anger or disrespect to you, and doesn't realize it. And, in those, and that's actually a large percentage of times when people treat us with disrespect. And to me in that situation, having the polite conversation backstage and to say, you are making me feel bad about myself. You are undermining my productivity. I'm thinking about quitting. And let me explain to what, you, what you're doing. You may not realize how you're making me feel. And, and that can be a very effective strategy. You know, one of the things that I noticed when you talked about the 8,000 emails that mm-hmm. you've received on this topic is how actually, you know, uh, <laughs> I love it when an additional question pops in my head and pushes the uh, pushes it out of the way. I'm, I'm sure it's like asking you which which of your your babies do you love the most? Even though I don't know any of us actually love this situation, but when you stop and you think back over the years of receiving all these emails around, you know, how do I deal with this jerk? How do I deal with this butthead in my world? You know, it's not necessarily maybe even an option for me to go somewhere else. Has there been an example or a story that really stood out to you and kind of caught you and you said, oh, gosh, yes, I definitely need to talk about this one? Oh, yeah. So so one sort of following up from polite confrontation, I thought this was brilliant. So um, about three years ago, a woman at one of the Stanford executive programs, she was a visiting um, executive student, and they had a CEO who engaged in consistently sexist behavior. So it was her and another woman. They were on the top management team, and there were four men. And, and this is the classic thing. This happens to, to Supreme Court justices, too, by the way, that he, was con- he would interrupt the women constantly and would not interrupt the men. So, and what they did was they kept a little tally of, of, of the 
in, number of interruptions, and they showed him the data. And it was something like after one meeting, they'd been interrupted 20 times, and the four guys zero times. And and he had this sort of a moment of rec- a, a realization that uh, oh, I'm being a jerk. So I like that one. And then and then and then on the other side, you want a really nasty story. Um, so uh, this is bringing down a, a, a narcissistic, nasty jerk. Um, I, I was speaking at a conference of community college administrators, and this guy described to me how they brought down their narcissistic, horribly abusive, and also unethical chancellor. What they did was he, he was the kind of uh, narcissist that if you criticize him or confront him, he would go crazy, just, just accuse you of disloyalty, fly off at the handle. So – so what they did was, in, in the, the way that the guy described to me, is we gave him his daily ass-kissing to keep him calm down, and then they just um, put together the case against him. Uh, they documented it, and then they brought it to the board, and the board got rid of them. So, so, I, so I like those because those are the two extremes. you got, like, the person who is just being a complete jerk and deserves to go, and then you've got somebody who's well-meaning and is engaging in bad behavior, and the information changed his behavior. So I, I like those two stories because uh, they're sort of at the extreme. And you notice in both cases, uh, the two women and the community um, college administrators, uh, they form sort of a posse to um, fight back, and it worked in both cases. You know, you just made me think of a question that I hadn't even thought of yet, and that is have you looked at the data from the emails and the information you've collected over the years, and is there a correlation between gender and asshole behavior? Yeah, so 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 in addition to the um, emails, and, and the emails are just random things people send me, one of the things that also got me excited about doing this book is there's been a couple hundred thousand peer-reviewed studies on aspects of all things asshole, if you will. And, and the evidence um, about gender is interesting because – um, there, there isn't that big a difference between how much women um, bully versus men. Men might bully 1% or 2% more, but where you really see the whopping effect is, is that it, it's just like any other form of abuse. You do it to the ones you're with because um, women tend to be segregated in occupations for better or for worse, HR, PR, um, um, occupations like that. And in engineering, for example, I'm in Silicon Valley, that is unfortunately still mostly men. So it tends to be men bullying men and women bullying um, women. And, and, and there are some gender effects, but uh, they're relatively weak compared to that sort of effect. Interesting. Because I know one of the things that I, I highlighted as I was reading your book mm-hmm. was how one founder said to you that he, he wonders and feels like he's maybe uh, too respectful to his team that he yep. did not act enough like Steve Jobs. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> as much as that was a quality that, that Steve had, uh-huh. there's, there's also a lot of indicators that, you know, some of that behavior uh, changed as he got older. And, and yes. so people tend to kind of hold on to a story and continue to amplify it. So this question is, is two-part. Why do we gravitate towards using an example like, you know, maybe I'm not enough of a jerk to get people to do what I want because look at how successful he is versus why do we think it's necessary for us to be that in order for us 
to get really good results. It just, it just amazes me. Well, it is interesting. Well, first of all, if you just start with the press, I mean, it's really boring to write that uh, Warren Buffett or Tim Cook that that they're um, or Ed Catmull at Pixar who worked for Jobs for years that they're consistently nice and polite to everybody that they work with. Although they will, all three of those people will make tough decisions. They'll fire people. They'll cut off funding. um, They'll do. They'll they'll criticize someone. But they're civilized people. Um, and it doesn't make for very interesting press. And uh, and somebody who says stuff dramatic and yells, like John McEnroe, the old tennis player. I mean, that's great footage. So the vividness of it is really is, is really quite exciting. The, the the and as you say, as I, as I describe in the book, that that in uh, this story comes straight from Ed Catmull, um, who met with Steve at least once a week for 26 years. His argument is that um, it was a more civilized Steve Jobs. Um, in his later years that became really um, rich and really had the impact, not the crazy young guy who got pushed out by Apple. So, so that's the, 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 the point of, of, of that story. Um, but I, I also have another thing which is more philosophical that I think is important, um, and there's, there's plenty of evidence that you can be a civilized human being and still be a very successful entrepreneur and leader. There's endless numbers of examples but um, my other part about that is if you're an asshole, if you treat people like dirt throughout your life, the evidence is that you are doing damage to them, even if it helps you get ahead. It's, it's overwhelming in terms of their physical health, their mental health, their family problems. So from my perspective, you're still a loser as a human being in, in my book, because it, it, it does not seem to be necessary to still get ahead in business. And I believe in getting ahead, ahead in business, believe me. Well, you know, I'm noticing that people are starting to get really, really frustrated as well as fed up with the fact that, as you said, media tends to focus on what gets them a lot of attention. And so there's mm-hmm. a, there's quite a bit of discussion around how can we shift that reward mechanism that happens. But it's so attached to, I think, our primitive mm-hmm. behavior. I'm just wondering if that's even a possibility. Well, boy, you're asking a tough question. I, my, I'll tell you my – so the pessimistic part about me says bad is stronger than good. Bad news is more interesting. Uh, people are dramatic. You know, Travis, the, the head of Uber, yelling at the Uber driver, that, that's much more interesting than just having a CEO having a polite conversation with the Uber driver. <laughs> um, but but the, but the the other side of it that's making me a little bit more optimistic is, is that is that first of all we're talking about this everywhere. I, I, it used to just be oh he or she is a tough boss and treats people like dirt and that's sort of charming. But it's it's now it's now something that is being viewed as something negative. And and if you see some of the things that are happening with Uber have happened with um, United Airlines. Um, that 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 there's starting to be a belief in business that if you treat people badly, it's bad for your brand, both with customers and with attracting the best employees. And 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 Uber is actually a pretty good example of that. Although they're still going through hell right now, that uh, that the, the, the evidence is that they lost customers. And also, just since I teach in the Stanford Engineering School. Uh, um, th- two or three years ago, um, or even a year ago, Uber was a, viewed as a much more attractive place to work um, than it is now because it's ki- kind of a stigma because of the nastiness. So, so hopefully there are some forces that are turning the tide. Well, I you know one of the things that made me kind of laugh out loud uh, was as I was reading the Asshole Survival Guide, I, it talked about how 
how powerful bathrooms are. I'm like, okay, <laughs> like now who knew that bathrooms could be so powerful? Share with people why this is in the book and why I'm, why well, I'm well, bringing this up. <laughs> I, 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 great. This is potty talk about the potty book. So, um, so, so <laughs> th- 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 there actually is academic research on bathrooms, and, and of course there's the usual biological function, but, but this notion that it's a place to go escape and compose oneself is very important. And to me, it's, it's, it's a larger example of, uh, of there's different kind of hiding places in organizations that people go to recover from their encounters with jerks. And, uh, and bathrooms, classic, the classic place in, uh, where people go. And, and, and it's funny because it tends to be gendered and think of women, but, uh, but one of the examples I use in the book was uh, Lloyd Blankfein, who is the CEO of Goldman Sachs. He, he was told when he was early in his career that uh, he looked absolutely terrible and he needed to go to the bathroom and compose himself. So it even happens. So it isn't. It isn't just. It isn't just. Uh, just women. It, but there are other hiding places. One of the the places I also saw when I did my early research on uh, nurses and doctors in in the surgical suite that uh, that was the place that uh, the nurses would go hide from the nasty surgeons too. But having a place to go and recover, provide emotional support, and compose oneself, it's one of the ways to get through the day that I think that we all use, especially if we've got friends who care about us and we care about them. You know, I love your early warning system section. I just wonder what our listeners would share about how they handle the imminent arrival of a known <laughs> asshole in their workspace. <laughs> well, well, it is, it is pretty – by the way, I, I won't describe the situation, but I use that myself. But, but there, there, there's all sorts of uh, folklore, and, and I use the example of, of, of this movie, The Proposal, um, where the, they have this, uh, this sort of um, asshole um, boss who's played by Sandra Bullock, and she's about ready to go into another building, and uh, her secretary sends out um, a note an email to everybody, the witch is on her broom, so they pretend like they're working and being efficient and everything. But, um, but the, this, this notion that uh, people bond together to provide warnings that somebody nasty is incoming or the classic thing, and I talk about an airline CEO in the book who a big part of his uh, executive assistant's job was people would call up and say, well, what kind of mood is he in today? Should I go talk to him or should I wait till tomorrow? And, and, and that's one of the things I just love about human beings is how when we get in difficult situations, we find kind of workarounds to um, to give warnings about what's going to happen so we can protect ourselves. So, um, yeah, but I love the notion of these early asshole warning systems. And and by the way, if, if you make reservations on open table, I talk about this in the book too, um, you got to be a little bit careful because if you're na- a nasty customer, they might put things in your uh, in your little profile like HWC handle with care. And there's some restaurants, such as the famous Danny Meyer restaurant group in uh, New York and stuff, Shake Shack and so on, um, although Shake Shack doesn't take reservations. But if you may find yourself being un- unable to get a reservation at a relatively empty Danny Meyer restaurant because they decide that uh, you're on the, on the asshole list, if you will. So, uh, so, so we've got to be careful with the web. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> you know, are there... Are avoidance techniques really the answer? I mean, what 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 are our other options besides going and trying to compose ourselves in the bathroom or sending each other warnings that you know someone's on a rampage today? Um, so so there, there 
so I think that we should maybe talk about some of the more proactive strategies because I'm not a believer that you should just always take it. I'm a believer that you should fight back, but I also believe you should be smart about it. So um, just you know, an example, you've got to be careful of the overconfidence. This is about six years ago. I had a new head of HR of a, uh, of a, a famous company everybody would have heard of, all your listeners, and she wrote me and she said, we're going to have a no-jerk rule, and I've been talking to the CEO, and we're going to get rid of the three biggest assholes in this company. And, and, and I wrote her back. I said, you knew. You sure this is going to work? Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Uh, then she got fired three weeks later. <laughs> so, <laughs> and, and she just hadn't done a well enough political analysis. But, but to me, um, if you're going to fight back, you should sort of figure out how much power you've got in this situation. Um, it, as some of the examples I've talked about already, if you're the boss and you can just fire people who, or demote people or move people who are jerks, that's great, but um, that's not true for most of us. Maybe you can have a posse. Uh, that sometimes helps. And, and then the one thing that I really emphasize, and everybody who's a lawyer or an HR person would say, is uh, if you can document, it really, really helps. So, so I'm a big believer in fighting back. But I'm also a believer that uh, that you want to do it in such a way to win. And, and to to go back, um, there there are, there's, there are a lot of situations, even when people know that they're being a jerk, um, that sometimes if you can just make it more vivid for them, it it can be effective. And, and one of my favorite uh, stories is uh, there's a now retired but very successful Silicon Valley um, CEO. Your listener would know the name of his company. He won't let me use the name of his company. But there, it's pre-IPO. It's the late 80s. And he's getting nastier and nastier to his team. And, uh, and the weird thing is he, was, uh, he specialized in vegetable insults. And this is straight from him, and then I fact-checked. Uh, he would say things to people like, um, you are dumber than a head of lettuce. The average zucchini could figure that out. And, and, and his team, just, he had this weird obsession with vegetable insults. So he walks into the boardroom one day, and instead of his team being there, there's a bunch of lettuce heads. And somewhere I've got the picture. He sent it to me. And the lettuce heads are wearing sunglasses and, uh, and hats where everybody usually sits. And, and they made up T-shirts. And, and the reason they did it was is a way to sort of send him the message that, yes, we know you're under a lot of pressure, but uh, your nastiness is not being helpful in, in, in the joke. And he said, I laughed about it, but uh, I also learned when I was ready to start snapping at my team to start thinking of, uh, of you know, that experience in the boardroom and the T-shirts we were all wearing and everything. And I, and I sort of like that sort of approach because they fought back, but in, in such a way to not bring him down, but to send him the message, you're hurting us with, without uh, – without, if you will, being um, overbearing. And they, they did it in a funny way, which can be very effective. So, Bob, why do jerks tend to be the boss, or is that an illusion on the general public's framework? Uh, well, for, I, I, the thing I guess I should start with is that, is that um, the percentage of bosses who are jerks is if you do regular bullying, it's probably only 10% of the population at any one time. So, so it isn't like they're all jerks. But, uh, but if you are a jerk or you're, you're working for one as a boss, there's a bunch of things that come with power that are associated with people treating other people badly. So there, there's evidence when people are in power um, that, uh, that they focus more on their own needs, less on the needs of others. Uh, they act like the rules don't apply to them. 
Um, and also they tend to see other people as objects. They have less em empathy for their suffering. And one of the things that I, I always talk about um, when I work with executives is, is to kind of warn them that when they start getting more and more power, that they've got to sort of fight this kind of power poisoning that, that comes with, uh, with being in an executive position. And it isn't automatic, but it is something that does happen to, um, to people when they get in power, and you can show it quite reliably. But obviously not all executives or not all bosses act that way, but you've got to find a way to fight it. And the best way to fight it is to have people in your life who can tell you the truth when you've been a jerk. That's all the research is. Uh, that's what we all need. We need somebody. You talk about Steve Jobs. Uh, one of the reasons that, uh, that, he, that he got better towards the end of his life is that there was a, a, a guy named Bill Campbell who was known as the CEO Whisper in Silicon Valley. Bill was a very accomplished executive in his own right. He was actually CEO of um, Intuit and, uh, and, and was on all sorts of boards and everything. But he was mostly – he was a former football coach of the Columbia football team and, and he would go for a walk with Steve um, every Sunday, and he'd talk to Steve about how to overcome his weaknesses. And it was very much sort of like a personal sort of mentoring thing. And part of Bill's uh, role, and it wasn't just with Steve Jobs, it was with the founders of Google, of Twitter. He was the CEO whisperer. That, uh, that part of his, job, his role in Silicon Valley is to give people personal advice to treat others with respect and more enthusiasm. So having somebody like that in your life is, is one of the most powerful antidotes to becoming, uh, well, both to being a more effective executive and to not being a jerk as an executive. Well, I've got two more questions for you as we're getting close to the end of our time together. You know, sure. we talk a lot about reframing in our leadership segments here on Breakthrough Radio, but can we also um, use that, technique when dealing with assholes and if, if we can what's an example that you've learned that's been really effective of, of what sort of race reframing. Oh, reframing oh well so my there's lots of techniques my favorite technique and there's very good evidence of this is that if somebody is treating you like dirt um, if you can just and this isn't going to cure it but it'll help you if you can just say to yourself it's a week later, it's a month later, it's a year later, and imagine you're looking back from the future rather than getting upset in the moment. It's, it, it really is protective of one's mental and physical health. We keep having more and more evidence. And one of my favorite stories, if you're, if you're in a military academy, um, it, part of being in a military academy is you get hazed. It's, the first year it's like that. And this guy wrote me when he was at the Air Force Academy. He said, so when they'd be an inch from my nose yelling at me, I would just imagine that it was two or three years later and I was flying. I was flying my plane. That's what my goal was. And this hazing was nothing compared to how great it was to fly the rest of my life. And I, I, So that coping technique of being able to look back from the future and realize it's not going to be so bad is, is one of my favorites, and it's one that I use myself, too, to get through difficult situations. Well, there is a signature question, Bob, that we like to ask all our guests on Breakthrough Radio, and it, and it came up about the third year we were on air. It uh -huh. was one of those situations where a Saturday afternoon I was watching Star Trek and Spock was doing his thing with his mind <laughs> now, where he puts his hands on people's heads and he morphs them in their mind and he can see from the beginning to the end, and I know you've never been snarky to TV. I kind of yelled at the screen. I said, I don't really care what's happened in his entire life, but if you could explain to me why he took 
that action and made that decision. And as soon as it was out my mouth, I'm like, wait a minute. That's actually something that would be helpful. What if instead of an entire mind meld, what if you could just have a slice of one? We'll just call it a brain download. Where you could understand why someone has made that choice decision. So, Bob, if you could do that, if you could have a brain download with anyone and you could uncover why they made that decision and that choice, who would you want to have it with? Oh, gosh. Um, so I, this is pretty dramatic, but uh, but if I could talk to anyone, he's not with us any longer, I, I would like to have a conversation with the President Truman, the, been dead many years. I would like to... Um, have his um, personal decision of why he made the decision to drop the atomic bombs, especially the second one um, mm. on, on Nagasaki, because the first one I sort of understood, and I would like to know how that decision got made. So uh, that's a pretty heavy decision, but, but it, it's still one of the most consequential decisions that's ever been made by a human being in history. And I would like to know what sort of rationale led, led to the decision to drop a bomb on all those people, which is certainly relevant to, to today's news. Uh, but, uh, you know, that's a decision that uh, many Americans still applaud, um, but I would like to understand it. So it's a pretty heavy decision, but boy. And, and he, he was a great president, and I admire him, but that's the one I would like to know about. I'm with you on that. That has to have been a very, very difficult decision. So, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to hear that explanation <laughs> with you. Gosh, yes. you know, I want to thank you so much for coming on so today much. and allowing us to just kind of shoot questions at you because, you know, I, I can imagine when you're doing interview after interview during a book launch, you know, sometimes after a while you're just kind of like, okay, can you think of a different way to ask me that? Oh, you, <laughs> you've done a really good job of of, of uh, sort of pressing me. And the, and the last question I think is a great one to ask guests because, uh, that's a completely different. That's that's not a no asshole thing. That's a a meaning of life type thing, and I think it's good to push all of us for to think like that. So I appreciate it. Well, you bet. Much success with this. I I, I don't think there's any doubt this is going to be a huge success, and I, I'm looking forward to hearing listeners' feedbacks after they've had an opportunity to read it and put some of your techniques and your advice into action. So thank you so much for thank taking so the much. time to write the darn thing. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. Now, before we shift into our Breakthrough Bite with Jeff Shuey, let me ask you, have you visited and participated in a Startup Grind Fireside Chat yet? I want to encourage you to reach out and find out what's happening in your city or your country with Startup Grind. You're going to find a group of enthusiastic entrepreneurs and investors who are looking to create profitable business and affect positive change for the world. This coming month here in Houston on Wednesday, October 18th, if you happen to be in town, we're going to dive into how to identify with and connect with global communities to build a sustainable business ecosystem. We're going to be learning about Bancor, an Israeli startup that gives you, no matter where you live and no matter what who you want to collaborate with, the ability to exchange monetary resources with ease. So what's happening in your city with a grind? Make sure you do go find out. All right, it's time for us to bring on Jeff Shuey, and let's see what's going on in his part of the world. Hey, Jeff, I understand you just moved, dude. Yep, we did. We just moved a couple of miles away, so we moved about, I don't know, 8, 10, 12 miles away, so kind of one one and a half cities over. 
last cities. Well, I'm curious, what what made you decide to go from one side of the town to the other? Well, as we get older and our kids get older, we get the opportunity to downsize. So instead of having a fairly gigantic house, at least by uh, some standards, we decided to go a little bit smaller. So it was a, a, down, a chance to downsize and to t- the market's good. <laughs> well, the market's good in your neighborhood. I'm not going to be getting used to real estate for a really long time. Oh, but anyway, we won't go there today. So tell me, why did you think that it was important for us to be talking about the customer journey today? It was a combination of things, but I don't know, two months ago uh, when we were, I think you and I were talking about something about then, and what I've realized is that uh, technology in and of itself is changing the way we shop. And at that time, I think I was just coming back from the Microsoft Inspire event where we saw some of the HoloLens technologies, but that's not the only mixed reality thing out there. But it's it's basically it's the, the way we shop has been changing for, well, really since the iPhone came out in 2007, but it's, it's accelerated in the past couple of years and it's going to continue accelerating. So I think the whole idea of the customer journey, the customer being in charge, and you can say in the olden days, the way corporations bought was they had to contact people and say, hi, I like your product. Can you please come in and show it to me? Well, nobody has to do that anymore. For the most part, uh, from a corporate standpoint, and, and personal, I'll come to personal second, but from a corporate standpoint, if you're interested in a photocopier or a, some sort of technology or office furniture, Nowadays, you can go online, do all your own research. You can also do comparisons between what other people have said or thought about the company and the product and the service because there's a partner aspect in there too, which we'll get to. But the whole idea of the customer journey, the customer being in charge, and from a corporate standpoint is what kind of prompted this idea where the customer gets to decide when and where they consume or find information, and then it extends over to the personal side. And we'll get into it a little bit more, but the idea is, of course, people have been doing quote-unquote window shopping. You can't see me doing air quotes, but quote-unquote window shopping for years. You walk into a retailer, you scan a barcode, and you find out that you can get it, you know, surprise, online cheaper. But, of course, that, that kind of obviates the, the idea of, number one, shopping local, and number two, I suppose, which, which includes supporting your local community, but the, the number two part of that is getting local service. And for commodities, if my milk is bad, that's not a big deal. But if I have a bicycle or a television or a washing machine, I may actually want to support my local retailers. And and I'm uh, I, I so the the short the shorter version of the answer is selling is changing. The customer really is in charge. Yes, there are times where the the uh, con, the, the vendor can control the content and information, but the customer gets to decide when, where, and how they buy. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that as we keep going on, about how some of the way Amazon is changing the marketplace, sometimes for the better, sometimes maybe not for the better. But the idea is customers get to decide when and where they buy, and the vendors have to learn how to adapt. And some of those adaptations will come in the form of technology, and we'll get into it probably a little bit more, but things like virtual reality and mixed reality, uh, things like what Amazon has done here in Seattle is they've made a store where there are no cashiers. You walk in, get what you want, and you walk out. And, you, you know, the, of course, the intent is that you pay for whatever it was. Um, so it's, you're not stealing. You're just not having to deal with a human on the way out. So that's, that's some of the, 
those are some of the things from the corporate side and from the personal side of why the customer journey is taking a front seat and how technology is powering those activities. Well, you've got nine minutes, so I'm going to put myself on mute, and I'm going to enjoy learning from you today. (laughs) Okay. Well, then in that case, I'll get started. So for the folks that read the framing post, I mean, the gist of it is in there. I mean, the idea is that the customer journey and the customer experience are somewhat one and the same. And what's ultimately happening is the customer gets to decide, in, in a sense, how, when, and where they buy. So starting off, I, I am a huge fan of Shop Local. And I'll, my brief explanation of that is when I buy bicycles, and for people that know me, I'm a mountain bike rider, and I've bought about 13 bikes over the last 18 years. And before you think, holy cow, that's a bike a year, they, the, all the bikes weren't for me. But I always try and buy from my local bike shop for a couple of reasons. One is they're local and they're now they're friends because I them. But when something breaks, and trust me, bicycles break all the time, I'm not an expert on bikes. I'm pretty good at fixing them, but I want them to be fixed local. A similar thing can be said for a fireplace insert or for a television or even for furniture. So, there, so I'm a huge fan of shopping local. But the idea of uh, the, the vendors, meaning the, the, the stores, the retailers, the, the people selling the stuff and also manufacturing the stuff, I, I say, and it's an old adage that I'm sure my dad said more than once to me, is that you have two ears and one mouth, and you should use them in proportion. And within that framework, I, I also or a concern. back and say you're wrong or, or at least to give, give the perception to the customer that, that you don't agree with what they're saying, but sit back and listen. Listen to whatever their comments are. They could be good. They could be bad. Listen to them. If they have a complaint about something that's not working or maybe a service person that didn't do what they expected, again, listen. And what I typically say from a concern standpoint, they're not always necessarily mad. In fact, sometimes and most of the time when you actually listen to the customer and and give them somewhat positive guidance and feedback, they will give you good reviews and hopefully they'll tell two friends and so on and so on. But the idea of that is it's not always about price. So in the olden days, it was comparison shopping and sometimes people would literally drive from place to place and say, customer or, or sorry, vendor X, they give me this price on this washing machine or bicycle or whatever you're trying to buy. And that's great. If you're purely 100% driven by price, you can do that kind of stuff. But ultimately what we're getting to, and this is where technology comes in, it's information-driven shopping. So I say information-driven shopping is the future. So yes, there are Yelp reviews for restaurants and there's Yelp or or other types of reviews for various businesses. And yes, there's technology to, to do price comparison, to do quote mobile window shopping. Again, you can walk into a store, whether it's a furniture store or a bike store or a car, a car dealership, and you can price compare literally everything down to the nth degree and down to the penny effectively. And that's all well and good, but the reality is the customer ultimately wants to be happy with what they buy, and people are getting, I wouldn't say more picky, they're just getting more specific. And I, I use a mentality that I kind of, I wouldn't say I came up with it. I, uh, w. Edward Dimming came up with it in the 50s, and he built it on top of uh, Shoehart stuff in the 20s. 
but it's the PDCA cycle. It's the plan, do, check, act. And what I mean by that is when you get those three C's, a comment, complaint, or concern, is you listen to that, you make a plan, you do something about it. Did it, did it do what I thought it was going to do? And then act. So you basically take that action, and then the cycle repeats. And a, a real-world example of that is with Elon Musk. So if you don't know who Elon Musk is, He's a relatively well-known guy who started Tesla, and he also has SpaceX, and he's got the Boring Company, a bunch of other stuff. But somebody had sent him a note, and it's, it's public domain. It's, it's uh, fairly well documented and, and, and out there. Somebody sent him a note about the, the supercharging stations where the people would go, uh, and the supercharging stations are for the Teslas where you go in, you plug in, and apparently it charges it in about 40 minutes and or, or whatever the time is, 20 or 40 minutes, and people – would leave their cars there because they'd go get coffee or go get lunch or shop or whatever they're going to do. Well, they're just like a gas station. When one person's there, nobody else can be there. So somebody sent him a note and said, it'd be great if the people, when they're done charging, could move their vehicles out of the way so other people that are waiting could get in there. So what Elon Musk did, and it was within hours, he responded and said, we can do something about that. So he set up a penalty system. So it's a, neg a negative reinforcement that basically says if you're not moving your car within, I think it's five minutes or 10 minutes, you actually sort of lose credit or credibility, if you will, within the Tesla organization. So the, the short version of that, I'll, I'll put a link in the follow-on post about this. But the point is he listened. He acted really, really fast. And he's a pretty busy guy. He acted really fast to put a, a mechanism in place so people could charge their Teslas faster or more people could get in the in the, the Tesla uh, charging station. I mentioned that as an example because that's rapid response customer service and it got a lot of visibility probably because it was Tesla and it was Elon Musk, but that's the kind of customer service people are looking for. Not necessarily instantaneous, but what I say is the CX or the customer experience is is getting better with technology. So it happened to be an email, but he also changed the way they, they electronically manage their vehicles. But other companies are starting to do things slightly differently, and they're starting to take a, a lot more of a responsive and reactive mode to what customers are looking for. There's a book from about, I don't know, 15 years ago called The Call of the Mall. And if you've been reading some of the stuff in the last, I don't know, year or so, in the last couple of weeks as well, about the death of the mall. So I, I've, I would say, when was the last time you went to the mall? I mean, I'm, I haven't been to the mall since I was, I don't know, in my 20s, I guess. But most people don't go to the mall anymore. They go online. And that, but you can't do that. You, most people can't do that for everything. So in the Amazon-powered world, but I also throw in Trader Joe's and Costco and Aldi's, Amazon, of course, just bought Whole Foods a couple of weeks ago for $13 billion. But I'm going to hit on Amazon from the customer experience for a second. What Amazon is doing, and, and this is not a whole article about our whole show about Amazon, but what they've done is pretty amazing. They've now got Whole Foods and 289 or something like that stores around the U.S. that both can be a pickup location and also be a return location for something you don't you may not want to keep or have it broken. They've also done a similar deal with Kohl's. I also mentioned it earlier, the grab-and-go idea with Amazon, where you can walk in and walk out, and the system knows that you took a chocolate milk, my personal favorite, and an apple, and it knows what those are, and it charges you accordingly because you've pre-set that up. Another one, which I think from a technology standpoint is changing the way retail works, but it can also work for other things, is the Amazon Dash. Literally, you just click, and Amazon 
basically sends to you. You just bought soap, soda, and maybe even sex because, yes, they do sell condoms there. So you can buy Tide. You can buy uh, Burt's Bees chapstick, and you can buy other things too. But that's, that's becoming the way technology, literally one push of a button, you just bought a bunch of soap maybe for your dishwasher or for your washing machine. But in a similar way, I could see a kid finding that button and pressing it 500 times. You, you might end up with a truckload of stuff, but I, I'm sure there's mechanisms in place for that. And the, the, finally, the fourth way with Amazon is drones. They're not doing drone delivery yet, but they're working on patents to make that happen, and it probably will. But I also look at Trader Joe's and Costco and Aldi's where they have a really simplified model to scan you very quickly. So get you in fast and get you out the door, but they do it with a lot of courtesy, but swiftly. And the idea is when you walk out the door, you're smiling. And what I like about Trader Joe's and Costco is now you can wear Aloha shirts, which I think is probably the single most important thing of the entire store. I'm kind of kidding, but but the idea is customers are smiling and happy, and they're using point-of-sale technology to make that happy happen and happy, I suppose. But the whole idea is from a technology standpoint, it's really a, a fast way to make sure you get checked out so customers are happy. But on the back end, there's a lot of technology happening. And I mentioned earlier that from the corporate side, and I was talking more about finding information and the whole customer experience, there's an incredible back end of logistics that a Costco and an Amazon and everybody else uses to make sure that the inventory is at the right place at the right time to reduce their cost to ship it. That might be a whole other show, but uh, the idea is the customer experience is driven by technology. The today stuff with the dash, with point and click, with this grab and go type stores are absolutely happening. But tomorrow what we're going to see is or are the more applications of, of artificial reality slash mixed reality, where mixed reality will be, you can envision what your kitchen would look like. You can envision what those Levi's jeans will look like on you in blue, in black, in green, or whatever other colors they happen to have. So you can do color fit. And you can also minimize the idea of returns because you just quote unquote tried on those clothes, either in augmented reality or potentially even in virtual reality. AR will take off faster because it's, uh, it's basically built into a lot of phones. The new Apple phones just came out with an AR chip and augmented reality chip built in. I don't think they're doing much with it yet, but I think having it in place is a really, really smart thing to do. So I think virtual reality will come a little bit later, but there'll, there'll certainly be more of that. And I've seen it already in place for manufacturers, how they see uh, jet engines on planes and how they do fit and finish on parts. But I think in the, the slightly sooner part of that is for design of office buildings and homes. So there is a customer experience that goes with that. But the key idea is from a technology standpoint, the tech is going to keep getting better and, and to some extent cheaper. And I think at the end of it all, to, to summarize in the last minute or so, is the pros are customers are key to the business. Knowing what makes them tick is going to be critical to the long-term success. And then the goal is to help them tell their story so that they can tell two friends and so on and so on. The cons are it takes money, and time is money. So if the business it thinks customer service is important, and trust me, it is, you need to budget the time and the funds to ensure that customer story is being set and met and also make sure you can capture it. The, the goal is to develop a trust relationship. And this is even true for commodities, whether you're delivering milk or delivering trucks. 
there are obviously significant price differences between them, but that trust relationship takes time to develop. And once you've built it, do everything you can to keep it. And the old adage of it takes seven X more money to get a new customer is definitely true. So the cons are, it can be intrusive. It can be hard to manage and hard to deal with, but by working with it one by one, one customer at a time, it can be done. And then finally, the return on investment is current customers, they're just happier and they can influence future customers. And it also makes future customers easier to find. And the other part of it is it drives and should drive continuous innovation, both in the products and services. And what I ultimately, the the last thing I'll say about it is if you're truly listening to what the customers are saying, that customer journey becomes your why, becomes the reason why you're doing what you do. And you hope that there's a passion within every business that they're hopefully not just doing it for the money, but they're actually doing it for customer satisfaction, customer service, and ultimately long-term loyal customers. So that's why I say the customer experience is enhanced with technology. Jeff, I'm looking forward to seeing what you're going to be teaching us next month. I have to tell you, you make First Mondays a lot of fun. Just understanding that bridge, that intersection between technology and people. So thank you for being willing to do that for us. Well, you're welcome. It's a lot of fun. I've got a few more ideas about the customer journey for next month, and I'm trying to get from the partner perspective. All right. Sounds good. Well, one of the things that we always like to remind you guys as we're wrapping up the show is your feedback is important to every one of us here on the team. You know, because our intention is to bring you guests each week that expand your knowledge and inspire your actions to grow your business. And to accomplish that, it's benefited all of us here, what you've liked, what you didn't like, which topics you're enjoying, which ones you want to learn more about. And you can always email us those requests at thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. Again, that's thebreakthroughspecialist at gmail.com. And we want to thank you for visiting and checking out additional episodes on Breakthrough Radio at www.thebreakthroughradio.com. So who else would you like to hear and learn from? Make sure you do let us know. And remember, our brain download question is fun as well as important. The intention is to remind you to ask yourself, how am I making my choices and my decisions? This is Michelle Price here on Breakthrough Radio, delivering you the best business minds each Monday live. I'm coming to you from the third coast of Houston, Texas, where we work with your business down the street or around the world, telling your dynamic story, attracting your ideal customers. We will talk with you next Monday. <laughs>